Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. All right, Genesis chapter 38. I've got some worksheets there if you want to take one and pass them out. We're not going to fill them in until a little bit later in the study. We're going to be resuming in the middle of the chapter. We got up to verse 12 last time we met, Genesis 38, verses 1 through 12. To give you a real quick rundown of what we saw last time we met, this is the chapter that's about Judah in the midst of the chapters that are about Joseph. So in this chapter about Judah, he marries this woman who's unnamed. She's a Canaanite. Red flag, right? You remember that was a red flag. And then he's also mentions he's got a friend named Hira who's an Adulamite. That's another person that lives in Canaan. Red flag. Uh, so he's married a Canaanite. He's got a friend who's a Canaanite. And then they end up having three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And I've got them on the chart in, behind me. Er's the firstborn, Onan the secondborn, Shelah the thirdborn. And then uh, Judah takes as wife for his son Er, Tamar. So Judah's the one that picks. Dad picks the, the wife for Er, his firstborn. We don't know what it was about Er, but there was something that caught God's attention. It says he was wicked enough God snuffed him out. All right? God killed the firstborn for reasons that aren't given to us, all right, other than his wickedness. Well, there's a problem. He didn't have any sons. And so back then the practice was, oh, dear, you can't let the family line just be extinguished like that. So the solution was, and eventually it becomes called Leverite marriage, oh, Nan, secondborn, your responsibility is to marry her, take her as wife, raise up, uh, have a son through her, and that son will carry on your older brother's family line. Onan apparently is fine having sex with her, but he's not fine having a son with her because that would displace him as the new number one spot in line for the inheritance. So he ends up not fulfilling his obligation there, and God kills him. (laughs) So if we're going to be crossing names off of her, what do we got? Firstborn son, Er is dead. Second son, Onan, dead. Shelah is too young to marry Tamar. And Judah says, you know what, Tamar, go ahead and go back to your father's house. Live as a widow, but good news for you, you don't have to live as a widow forever because when Shelah gets old enough, I'll give you Shelah to be your husband, and we can try to start this process over again. All right? But there's a little problem. In Judah's mind, he's like, something's wrong with that girl. <laughs> and I, I'm not going to give my third son to her because he might die too. All right? So as time goes by, it becomes obvious that Shelah is old enough, though old enough to marry now, to be given in marriage. And Tamar and Shelah could be getting married now. It's not happening. It's as if Judah is ignoring that obligation, that, that pledge, that promise that he had made to her. Okay, so that's kind of where we left off. We're picking up now in verse 13. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. And I should I, I left one part out. The last time we met together, we saw that Judah's wife, the unnamed woman, we don't know her name, dies. And Judah mourns over her. 
He doesn't. It doesn't say anything about he. Mo- oh yeah, I got to cross I another cross name off. off. Esther's like, get up there with the pen, cross her off. All right. <laughs> so Judah's wife died. Judah mourns for her. The time of mourning passes, and interestingly, we don't find any note or mention that Judah actually mourned for the death of his sons, but mourned for his wife, and the time passes. So now it's sheep-sharing time. Sheep-sharing time is a very festive time. It's a very uh, celebratory, I mean, it's, it's like payday for the year. Okay, so Judah and his friend Hira, they might have even had a business together. We don't know, but they're kind of like they go together in this story as this goes on. But anyway, somebody tells Tamar, your father-in-law, that's Judah, is going to where the sheep shearing festival is. All right. So Tamar apparently comes up with a plan and we can see the plan starting to unfold in verse 14. So she took off her widow's garments all these years, she's still dressing as the widow that she is, waiting for the day when she can marry Shayla, right? She took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself and sat in an, mine says, in an open place. Anybody have something different other than open place? Entrance to Anam. The entrance to Anam. Okay, so that word there, Anam, it basically means open, all right? And it usually has to do with open eyes. All right. So some of your translations will go with an open place. What is it that's open? They'll they'll put an open place, or they'll say enam. Just realize there's kind of a play going on, a play on words there. There's a couple different plays. One of the plays is well, she's putting on a veil. All you can see is the opening of her eyes. Right. That's all you can see. And we're going to find out Judah. It's going to be as if he's blind to what's going on in this story. All right. So there's that little uh, play on going on in there. And then also you've got this idea of lust. When somebody sees somebody else and they're sexually aroused by that, we're going to see some of that element come into this story as well. Verse 14, covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in an open place, which was on the way to Timnah, for she saw that Shayla was grown and she was not given to him as a wife. Judah is violating his obligation to her, his pledge, his promise to her. When Shayla's old enough, I'll give him to you and I'll give you to him. That should have already happened, and it hasn't. So Judah, is, he's obligated to do something, and he's reneging in a way by not going through and fulfilling that. Chapter 38, verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot because she had covered her face. So you get in this picture? Here she is. She's by the side of the road on the way to this place that she knows he's going. She's positioned herself in a place where she can be seen. He sees her. He thinks she's a harlot. He thinks she's a prostitute. Was this intentional? It sounds like it might have been. All right. I'm just giving that away. It sounds like she might have done this on purpose. All right. (laughs) Scandalous. Verse 16. All right. Verse 16. Then he, this is Judah. Then he turned to her by the way and said, please let me come into you. He is soliciting her for prostitution. Please let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. So she said, like any conversation with a prostitute would eventually lead to, what is, you know, what are you going to give me? She says, what will you give me that you may come in to me? All right. So she's negotiating like you would expect a prostitute to do. Verse 17. And he said, I will send you a young goat from your flock. Well, that's all fine and well. Where is your young goat? Right. So she says, will you give me a pledge till you send it? So he's not leading a young goat along the road, hoping to find a prostitute. He just sees her and goes, you know, this sounds like a good opportunity. And I, my wife's passed away and hey, who's going to notice? 
Um, Judah's engaging in some behavior here that even though it's mentioned in the Bible, uh, it's not to say that God condones this type of stuff. All right? Not everything you find in the Bible means God condones it. All right? There's plenty of examples of wickedness and sin in the Bible. Here's a good one. All right? So he works out this deal that he's going to give her a young goat if he can have sex with her. She says, what will you give me as a pledge until you bring me the goat? Right? The play on words here again. The pledge. What will you give me as a promise that you're going to fulfill what you say you're going to fulfill for me? He's already made a pledge. When my son's old enough, that was a pledge. It wasn't fulfilled. So this right here is kind of playing on that. She's like, what will you give me so that I can know that your word is trustworthy? What do you have to show me? What do you have to give to me until you're able to come by with your young goat? All right. And then uh, he says, well, what do you have in mind? He says in verse 18, then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Your signet, your cord, and the staff that is in your hand. Let's talk about these for a little bit. The signet, you guys have heard of a signet ring, I'm sure. All right, A signet ring, a piece of jewelry that you could use to impress on a wax seal, if you will. Let's, let's imagine we're talking about a scroll or a letter. All right, Imagine uh, a scroll or a letter, you put some wax on it, you take your signet ring and you impress upon it a seal. And what does that do? It's unique to you. It identifies who you are. And therefore, the person who receives it can look at the seal and go, oh, I recognize that's from this person. It's authentic. All right. It was a way to authenticate something. It was a way to say, this is from me. This is my identity. All right. And you're putting your identity there in that seal. Well, you go back further in time and it could be used for other purposes and it had other forms. It didn't have to be a ring. It could be a bracelet that had a place or a piece of precious uh, stone or metal that you would use. You know, you take off the bracelet and you would impress it upon maybe wax or maybe something else in the form of pottery. Apparently there's some pottery that's been found with handles that while the pottery was still kind of um, malleable, you could take that seal and press it upon the handle of, of that pottery and it would show this belongs to this family. All right, so you had an impressed upon that and identification. All right, there was also necklaces and the seal in those situations was a cylinder. And I've got here kind of a sample of that. So you've got this little cylinder thing right here and it's got this ornate and unique design on it. And what would happen is if you were to take this necklace with this seal on it, with this signet on it, and you could impress it by rolling it. All right, so if you had some wax on it or something, and you would stick this in there and you would roll it, and that would impress the seal upon it, and it would put the identity on there. So she's asking for probably a necklace form because it talks about the string part too, right? So you, the signet and the cord. So it's a signet on a cord, and in this case... How do I look? Fashionable? Is that good? No. <laughs> All right, so it makes kind of a necklace of sorts. And so she's asking for his identification. And let's talk about the staff a little bit. The staff was also a form of identification. Usually the, the ruler in the family or the head of the household would have a staff, and it wasn't just a piece of, you know, a branch or a stick you found on the side of the road. It was something that served as an identification of you. You might have it carved in a certain way, or maybe you have some special thing on top, and it would serve to identify the owner. You know, because if you go into a pub or an inn or whatever they would call them back then, you set it in the corner while you have your meal, and you go to walk out. Which one's mine? Oh, here it is, and you got your staff and you can go on your way, all right? So what is she asking for? Basically, she's asking for things that would be easily used to identify him. It'd be like asking one of us for, 
a signature and a thumbprint and maybe your birth date. All right. Those could be things that would help to identify you and, and narrow down the pool of people from the entire world down to one person. All right. Or what's the police officer going to ask you for when they pull you over for a speeding ticket? It's your driver's license, your registration, your proof of insurance, right? Forms of identification. So here she's asking for identification. Things that are important to him, but not so much to her. If she was just a regular run-of-the-mill prostitute, these would think, be things that wouldn't be too important to her because she's not going to be able to use them to fraudulently do anything. There's not like identity theft going on back then. But basically, she's she knows they're valuable to him. And so if you're the John in this transaction and you recognize, well, that makes sense to me. If the prostitute, you know, I tell her I'm going to bring a goat, she has no way to believe me. If I give up these things, they're not important to her, but she knows they're important to me. She knows I'll be back to get those things. So she has assurance I'll be bringing her that young goat. All right. Verse 18 started with this. Then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. And then the rest of it. Then he gave them to her. This is interesting that this is all one sentence. He gave them to her, he went into her, and she conceived by him. In one sentence, you've got the finalizing of the transaction, consummation, and now she's conceived. <laughs> uh, all, in, all in one sentence there. Verse 19. Somebody mind reading verse 19. So she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. All right, so they're all done. She doesn't intend to remain an identity that could be mistaken for a prostitute. She's not looking to take up the career of prostitution. This was a specific targeted thing that was going on. And having accomplished what she set out to accomplish, she's now returned home and she's trading those prostitute harlot clothes for the widow's garments. Okay. Um, I kind of wonder, though, when she heard that Judah was going to go up to sheep shearing time, I wonder if she thought to herself, well, then Shayla's going to be going with him. I wonder if her target was Shayla. It doesn't say. I'm just wondering. I, I might be thinking if I was in her shoes, maybe Shayla's going to be going with him. Maybe he's the one. I, and then it turns out to be Judah. That's even stranger. Okay. So here we are resuming then with, uh, with verse 20. So Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite. You remember his name is Hira from verse 1. Uh, by the hand of his friend, the Adulamite, to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. Problem. We find out in verse 21. Then he asked the men of that place. This is Hira leading a goat by a leash, apparently. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot who is openly by the roadside? So apparently he's gone back to the place. Apparently he was with Judah when this happened. How awkward is that? Uh, Hira, you just hang out right here for a second. I'm going to go talk to that woman over there. Oh, where'd they go? They disappeared behind that rock. Oh, I know what's going on. <laughs> you know, and it comes. So he sends Hira, the Adulamite, with the young goat to find the woman in that place where he remembers, I'm sure, from the incident when it happened. He doesn't find her. He has to go to the people of the town and ask, where is she? And they're going, we don't know what you're talking about, right? They said there was no harlot in this place. Judah and Hira apparently were under the impression that this was a woman who, this was her spot. And they asked the town people, where's the woman who, you know, that was her spot? And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. We know the spot. No woman that we know of that we associate with that spot. And then uh, the word that Hira uses here in verse 21 when he's talking about the woman in English, it's the same word. It's harlot, but it's actually a different word in Hebrew. The word here in Hebrew is a more respectable form of harlot, <laughs> if there is one. Okay, It's a cult prostitute. What that means is a woman who has sex on the side of the road, I guess, uh, for religious purposes. All right, As if that sounds better. Here's the way that works. 
maybe you want to assure that uh, your family is not going to be barren. You want to assure that there's going to be good fertility. And so you would have sex with the cult prostitute for the god of fertility. You know, and uh, if you did, that would hopefully, you know, make your family more uh, fertile. All right. So they use kind of that word for her, not just this person who's just out there having sex for no reason other than to get money, as if it, you know, like I said, a little bit higher level of, of motive there. They use formal language. They use polite language when they're talking to the townspeople. When Hira is talking to the townspeople, he uses this slightly higher level of prostitution when he's talking to them. Verse 22, so he returned to Judah. This is Hira. He's returning back now. <laughs> that goat had a long walk. He returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also, the men of that place said there was no harlot in that place. So now you can imagine, this is going to be hard to track this woman down. We went to the place where she was expected to be. She wasn't there. We went to the men of that area. They don't know what we're talking about. It's kind of a dead end right now. You don't really know where she's going to be. And there's a concern. If we go back, wandering the hillsides, going, Hey, prostitute, I got your young goat. Right? It's going to look bad for Judah. So what does Judah say in verse 23? Then Judah said, let her take those things for herself. Let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. All right, so he's kind of like, you know what? I'll make another staff. <laughs> I'll get another signet. All right, just uh, let's just be done with it. I don't want to get embarrassed through the whole countryside that some prostitute took advantage of me and took my took my stuff. All right? Verse 24. Somebody mind reading verse 24. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by archery. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. Do you feel like there's a double standard here? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a woman to gauge in harlotry, uh, burn her. For a man to gauge in harlotry, oh, you know, it was sheep shearing time. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. You know, what? No, this is a double standard. And look how fast he is to say, bring her out and let her be burned. There's no trial. There's no opportunity or invitation for her to present her case or to say anything. In his mind, he is thinking, why that no good woman? She's supposed to wait for Shayla without saying the one I withheld from her. Right? right? Kind of strange things going on. All right, So he's ready to pick at the speck in her eye when he's got a log in his eye, right? Mm-hmm. Using the words of Jesus. Uh, so death by fire was rare. You don't see it much in the Tanakh in the Old Testament. Uh, you see it for especially egregious sex crimes. And uh, in this situation, I guess in his mind, this is, uh, this is in that same category. And then verse 25, somebody mind reading that one. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine whose these are, the signet and cord and staff. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So Judah has sent people to go get Tamar, to bring her out and burn her. Do you suppose Judah sent strangers to go get her? No. He wouldn't have sent strangers. He would have sent trusted servants, right? Trusted servants who would know at a glance what his signet looked like. And what his staff looked like. All right. So he has sent these guys, trusted servants, to go get Tamar. Tamar says, "Uh, I'll go with you, but, uh, you know, let me ask you a favor. Can I get something out of the house real quick? Okay, can you please take these to Judah as we're walking and uh, show him and see what he says? Because I'm pregnant by the person who owns these. Well, these trusted servants are going to go, 
oh, dang, this is going to be ugly, right? If, if you're one of those servants, I'd be like, I'll hold her and make sure she doesn't get away while you take the bad news <laughs> to the master because I don't want to be the one bearing the bad news, carrying those things when we walk back into wherever he's at, right? And, and when you see there that second sentence of that verse, and she said, please determine whose these are, there's only two places in the Tanakh where that phrase appears. Only two places. This is one of the two. The other one is when, you remember, Joseph was in the pit. And Judah said, let's pretend he was killed. Let's take his robe, strip it off, rip it up, dip blood in it. And we're going to take that robe and we're going to show dad and say to dad, please examine these and try to determine whose they are. It's the same phrase. When they deceived dad by saying that phrase, it's now coming back on Judah. Judah was the one that came with the idea of doing that to Joseph. And now it's being done to him. All right, kind of fitting, kind of ironic, isn't it? Please examine it. Verse 26, somebody mind reading that one? So Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. Excellent. Thank you, Esther. You see the handouts that I've given you there? This is the first one that you're going to be filling in. It says Judah, and then you see the colon there. Judah, the first person to repent. First person to repent. Here you see Judah confronted in his sin, and he recognizes that he's the one with the bigger fault, that the bigger sin is on him, and he acknowledges it. Too often we set up a wall or a block and, we, and we're blind to our own sins. And even when we're confronted with it, uh, we don't want to acknowledge it. Here he acknowledges it. This starts a process, I'm convinced, in Judah's life where he's going to begin a transformation that God wants to work through him, just as God wants to work through us. And there needs to be a point where we wake up to our own sin, where we recognize and we acknowledge it. And that's what he's doing here. It sounds like he's waking up to his own sin. Verse 27. Somebody might reading verse 27. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. Excellent. Thank you, Sydney. Remember, Rebecca had twin sons in her womb, and she was like, oh, what's going on inside of me? Because they were like kicking and wrestling and whatnot, jostling around. You had that kind of issue. Well, this birth is going to be somewhat like that. So Tamar, she's got twins in her womb. Verse 28, and so it was when she was giving birth that one put out his hand. It's not the normal way you're born, but anyway, one puts out his hand, and the midwife, this is the person assisting in the birthing process, took a scarlet thread and bound it or tied it to the little baby's hand and saying, this one came out first. So we've got a mark, an identification of which one was being born first, but something goes sideways on this. Verse 29, then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, this is the midwife speaking, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. So what do they name? They name him breakthrough. They name him breach. That's what the name Perez means, breaking forth or bursting forth. So we have Perez is being born first. Zara is the second born. Verse 30, afterward his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was Zara. Zara means brightness or bright future. We were looking at the end of our study last time. It wasn't looking like a bright future. Air, dead. Onan, dead. Shayla, I don't want him to die too, right? So the future of this family was looking pretty bad. Now Tamar has had two boys. The second one she names Bright or Brightness or Dawning or Shining or Bright Future. And she has Perez, this one that uh, means breaking forth or bursting through. Perez, I want to talk a little bit more about Perez. Go to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth and go to the last chapter of the book of Ruth. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. So it's the eighth book of your uh, of your Old Testament. And it's a short little book. You're going to go to Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. Somebody mind reading verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. 
And your house like the house of Perez, whom tomorrow boarded Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. What? Perez is mentioned in the book of Ruth? That's weird. The people in the book of Ruth at that last chapter, in that last little section, are going... They're talking about, uh, you remember the main characters in the book of Ruth, right? There's Ruth, there's Naomi, and there's Boaz, all right? Naomi is the old widow, right? And Ruth is the daughter-in-law who says, I'll follow you, I'll go with you, your people will be my people, all right? Your God will be my God. And Boaz is the hero of the story. He's the, the kinsman redeemer. And Naomi sets it up to help Ruth get married to Boaz, all right? So Ruth and Boaz get married, and they have a baby, and the, the community rejoices, may your baby be like Perez. And you're going, how is it, how, what does that have to do with anything? You find out that Perez is an ancestor of Boaz. Boaz is related to this Perez. Kind of weird, isn't it? Read verses 18 through 22. Somebody mind reading verses 18 through 22. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron, good. Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Ammon. That's a hard one, right? Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have afflicted you with that. I should, have, <laughs> I should have volunteered to read this one. Huh? Sorry, Mike. No, no problem. Do you want me to read it? Yeah. Okay, you got it. So Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. Now this is the genealogy of Perez, right? The Perez we're looking at, born to Tamar. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz, the hero of the story in the book of Ruth. And if you read further, what do you see? And Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Hmm. Do we know anybody named David in our Bible? The greatest king, one of the greatest kings. Let's say the greatest king that Israel's ever seen. So what have I got? If you fill in your fill in the blanks there, you're going to see this. Tamar, through Perez, from whom Boaz, David... All right, so we've got two descendants so far that we're looking at. Boaz, David, if you follow this family line down further, where are you going to do that? Oh, wait, the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 gives you the rest of the family line, and it takes you to Jesus. Born of Perez, born of Tamar. So Tamar, through Perez, from whom Boaz, David, and even Jesus eventually come. What a weird mixed up family situation this is, right? And what does that say? God is sovereign. God can do anything, right? If he can make his family line come through this mess, that's amazing. And not only that, when you look at the genealogy in the book of Matthew chapter 1, you find Tamar's mentioned. She's one of only five women mentioned. 42 generations, there's only five women mentioned. One of them is Tamar. If you look at the women that are mentioned in there, you got a prostitute, uh, somebody that they thought was a prostitute. You got the, an adulteress. You know, you got this weird, you know, combination of women that are mentioned. Tamar is one of them. She gets to be in the family line of the Messiah, of Jesus Himself. So there, there's that filling in the blank there. So as you're filling in your blanks, you got the first one filled in. You got the second one filled in. Let's look at the third one. All right, the rod. Let's talk about the rod a little bit. So we talked about the rod and the rod that was uh, Judah's rod that he gave to Tamar. It was a form of identity. It was a form of authority. It was uh, being in charge. It was the head of the household type of thing. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, obviously we're going to get there someday. Uh, But in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there's actually a prophecy. What's going on over there is that Israel is prophetically speaking about his sons. He's just about to die. And and what he has to say is, is like this cryptic language about each of the sons. 
right? It's not clear stuff. It's not like, uh, you're going to be rich, you're going to be poor, you're going to be, you know, lots of kids, you're going to... No, it wasn't any of that. It was like this language that is just really deep and poetic, and there's a lot of baggage that goes along with it, and you've got to go, what is he talking about? Well, one of the things he says about Judah in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, is this. If you look at 49.10, it says, the scepter, the rod, right? That rod, the staff, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's in New King James. You have a slightly different version, like in uh, New American Standard. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. What does that mean? Most of your commentators will say, this is looking forward to the Messiah. All right. This is looking forward to the Messiah. How much time do I have? Not much time. This is going to go really fast. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Judah is a person right now. Genesis chapter 38. Judah is going to have lots of family, lots of kids. He's going to become a tribe, right? Judah is a son of Israel. Jacob became Israel. You remember that. So Judah is a son of Israel going to become a tribe of Israel, one of 12. Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. All right. Follow me so far. Mm -hmm. Fast forward down to the time of the kings. Saul becomes the first king. Didn't work out so well. David becomes the next king. Good job. Solomon becomes king. Kind of shaky. Solomon has a son, and the kingdom passes to him. And Solomon's like, how am I going to rule these people? What do you guys say? And he goes to his advisors, and he goes to his friends. And they both give competing (laughs) advice. One advice is, you know what? Take it easy on them. The other advice is, be harder on them. And he says, you know what? I'm going to be harder on them. They're like, forget you then. We're not going to be your subjects anymore. And ten of the tribes break off, split off, and they become Israel. And two tribes remain, and they become Judah. The land is split. The kingdom is split into two, into two kingdoms. The kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. The prophecy is you're going to keep having kings. Judah. Dad's talking to his son prophetically in Genesis chapter 49. Judah. The kings are going to still come from you. You're still going to have kings until the Messiah arrives. Fast forward now, when you look at uh, the rabbis, in A.D. 70, the temple is destroyed. And there's weeping because the realization is the time has passed. The Messiah was supposed to arrive by this moment. The scepter that we're in charge, we're not in charge anymore in A.D. 70. So there's crying, there's lamenting because the Messiah never came It's A.D. 70, and the Messiah never came. But what do we know? The Messiah came, but he didn't look like what they were expecting. Jesus did come. And this is one of the 300 prophecies that points to Jesus. If you take the prophecies and you start saying, well, he had to be born in Bethlehem. Let's see, he had to be born before A.D. 70. If you start taking all the parameters from all the prophecies, you're left with one unmistakable conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah. But they missed it because he didn't fit the mold. So this looks forward to the Messiah. So that third box that I've got there, the rod looks ahead to Jesus as Messiah. The rod looks ahead to Jesus as the Messiah. All right, and then one more thing to talk about. Let's look at the signet seal. That's the fourth one, right? The seal. The signet seal. What is this? It's, it's something unique that's on your necklace. That you roll it. It's, it's, now it's, it shows identity. It shows its belonging. It shows This shows authentication. It shows ownership. It shows identity. All right? The signet, it serves all those purposes. What ends up happening is in the New Testament, what does it say? If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, it says this. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ, this is Paul, talking to the, the church in Corinth, all right, the, the assembly in Corinth. And Paul says to them, 
speaking in the us term, he is he who establishes us with you in Christ. All right. So it's a body of believers and has anointed us is God who has sealed us. Paul saying God has sealed us. God has made his impression. He's made his mark on us. And given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He further says to the church in Ephesus, all right, the gathering in Ephesus, he talks further about this and makes it even more specific. It says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. This serves as kind of a symbol of the Holy Spirit. If you imagine like the envelope, like I was talking earlier, you seal an envelope with wax and you would impress your seal upon it. It's as if the Holy Spirit is the wax sealing you up as a guarantee of the authenticity as the ownership, right? And then God makes his mark on you. He's talking about us being sealed as if God made his mark on us, as if the signet of God is on our lives. All right, so what does that say? The seal looks ahead to the Holy Spirit as our seal. Mm -hmm. And while you're filling that in, what I'd like to do is I'd like to give you guys one more gift. I've given you some gifts today. but uh, I want to give you each one of these that I made. uh, I'm not a jeweler, but you made them. I made them. I mean, I, I didn't make the cylinder part, of course. You know, I, I bought the I bought the pieces. And, and Thank you so much. But I wanted to give you guys something to remember. Wow. Because this story is weird. This story is, is strange. And, and, and you can you can leave it and you can go, there's nothing good to come out of that. Unless you look at what can the rod point to? What can the seal point to? And, and some of those things, uh, you can see a little brightness in it. All right. All right, let's close in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we love you and thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to dive in deep into your word. And we thank you, God, that uh, though it's embarrassing as we imagine ourselves in the places of the people in the scriptures, it's also humbling to see how gracious and how sovereign you are. You can do anything, and Lord, thankfully, you choose grace and mercy as a way to, to deal with us in the here and now. Help us, Lord, to be sealed by your spirit for your purposes that we would be recognized by others that see that in our lives and say i can tell to whom they belong thank you in jesus name amen